Good evening and welcome to a very special episode of Left, Right and Center. I'm Vishnu Shom. We are coming to you from the World Economic Forum uh, in Davos, Switzerland. NDTV has had a presence over here at the World Economic Forum for 16 consecutive years. We are back this year where we hope to bring you the best interviews with the most influential voices, whether they are political leaders, whether they are business leaders or thought leaders. The world is in a crisis. There are wars happening in many, many places. That is something that the World Economic Forum will be looking at very closely. India is an outliner, outlier when it comes to economic growth, but certainly there are concerns around the world and in the long term, those concerns might impact the Indian economy as well. But right up off the top, to give you an idea of what some of the key concerns and some of the key issues at the World Economic Forum this year are, I should tell you that the WEF is the foremost private forum on key international issues. And I will explain to you why it is so and how it is attended regularly and certainly this year by leaders from around the world. Among those attending this time, the French President and the US Secretary of State, and they are over here because of the situation in West Asia. They will certainly be looking uh, at the situation uh, in Ukraine as well. Uh, a key focal area will be diplomatic talks, which are taking place uh, in the Middle East, in Ukraine. Um, so bringing or ensuring that the war uh, does come to an end, whether it is Ukraine, Russia, or whether it is Israel, Hamas, is certainly a priority. What are some of the solutions over there? Well, let's take a look at who is going to be attending. The U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is going to be there. There are going to be representatives from Qatar as well and the United Arab Emirates. Remember, Qatar has been an important player as far as peace negotiations between Hamas and Israel is concerned. They had a key role, for example, to play in facilitating the release uh, of hostages. The Israeli President, Isaac Herzog, is likely to attend as well. So again, that initiative to push, hopefully, for a peace. Now, 40 foreign ministers are scheduled to attend um, the World Economic Forum this year. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is likely to be over here. However, Russia's presence is low this time. In fact, it would be fairly minuscule. China is being represented by their Premier Li Qiang. Um, and a key challenge, as I mentioned when I started this program, uh, is that all of what is happening now in terms of the geostrategic environment is taking place uh, when there are profound economic uncertainties, central bank policies, incre uh, increasing debt that is also going to dominate the agenda. And of course, India is an outlier. But let's talk a little bit about India. How is it that how is India looking at the World Economic Forum this year? Well, I can tell you, and I was out uh, on the promenade a short while back, uh, it is almost a mini-India. And this is what I've seen, and this is my fifth consecutive visit uh, to the World Economic Forum. It is a mini-India uh, out there. There is a real pitch being made by the center, and there's a real pitch uh, being made uh, as well by uh, state governments to try and ensure that they attract interest. Three union ministers, Hardi Puri, Ashwini Vaishnav, Smriti Irani, they're over here. The leaders of the biggest Indian industries, the biggest business houses, they're all over here. Telangana, Tamil Nadu and Maharashtra have pavilions. They're looking to bring in um, investment from outside and also a major presence of Invest India and the Confederation of Indian Industry, which is binding together all of the economic uh, aspects of what I spoke about. But let's focus on this program 
on what the macro scenario is. And we've got a wonderful panel joining us. And the question that we are looking at is, can the World Economic Forum be that forum where there can actually be a breakthrough in terms of finding a lasting peace uh, in the scenarios that we see around the world? Dr. Walter Ludwig, Department of War Studies at King's College London, joins us. Dr. Hassan Al-Hassan, Senior Fellow for Middle East Policy at the International Institute of Strategic uh, Studies with us. Uh, Glenn Carl, a former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats. Uh, he joins us from the United States. Uh, our former Foreign Secretary, Kawal Sibyl, uh, with us as well. In fact, Ambassador Sibyl, let me come to you first. Um, you know, in your experience in having dealt with foreign policy for so many decades, do you believe that we are any closer to seeing a resolution to the crisis in West Asia? Not at all. Not at all. You see, United States uh, has to change its entire uh, approach to this conflict if there is any chance of this conflict uh, ending. But Israel is, is rejecting uh, United States pressure. After all, look at the amount of number of visits that Blinken has made. Look at what the U.S. president himself has said right from the start, that don't get into a rage because it will not be in your larger strategic interest. But Netanyahu is absolutely determined to pursue his long-standing policy of preventing the emergence of a two-state solution. Even when today, United States and others, at least pro forma, are talking about a two-state solution. So I don't see uh, any uh, forward movement on this. In fact, the concern is that uh, the, the, the war may extend to the region as a whole, even though, even though Iran and other countries don't want it because they know the dangers to them uh, if they got embroiled directly into a conflict, into this conflict. But then you find the Houthis now, whether with support of Iranians or acting independently, are now disturbing uh, the the Red Sea commercial traffic, which is vital for the global economy, which is very important for India. And United States and Britain have now attacked uh, the Houthi targets in Yemen. This could be the starting point of a situation yes. getting escalated and going out of hand. But uh, who are the players who can yep. stop this? The, the principal players are not talking to each other. The United Nations is helpless. The UN Secretary General has been, has been appealing frantically for a ceasefire and has been yep. propagating to the world the, the dire situation in which the Palestinians are, but nobody is listening to him. So, frankly, I can't see a Davos simply because... No, indeed, it is a crisis, Ambassador uh, Sibyl. I completely take your point. And, uh, Dr. Hassan Al-Hassan, the fact that... Let me come to you next, Dr. Hassan Al-Hassan. The fact that we've seen this entire expansion of the conflict into the Red Sea, the fact that this is an absolutely critical waterway uh, affecting billions of people around the world, that there is a very active conflict, uh, missiles being fired every couple of days and being intercepted so far. The fact that um, the United States and its allies have retaliated very, very strongly, is it your indicator that this is the beginning of a worst-case scenario where the war in West Asia is now expanding? Well, it's very clear that uh, the more the war in Gaza drags on, uh, the more uh, that Iran and its partners in the region will see a strategic opportunity to push uh, their agenda in the region. 
uh, in a sense, uh, the fact that the U.S. has decided not to publicly pressure Israel into accepting a ceasefire, that Israel's, uh, or at least some of its uh, Western uh, allies and partners have also uh, decided not to pressure Israel into accepting a ceasefire. This obviously creates a tremendous political and ideological opportunity for Iran and its partners in the region, most significantly the Houthis uh, in this case, uh, to continue escalating under the pretext of supporting the Palestinians. Uh, and they will continue to invest uh, and capitalize on these opportunities for as long as Iran, pardon, for as long as Israel, in fact, continues uh, this uh, military campaign uh, in Gaza. Now, the escalation in the Red Sea obviously poses strategic risks. Uh, it means that uh, uh, it raises the uh, temperature in the region. It poses a threat to maritime traffic. So far, the economic uh, consequences of uh, the disruption in maritime traffic in the Red Sea have been fairly limited. We haven't seen oil prices react significantly. Some countries like Egypt, where uh, the Suez Canal obviously relies on the flow of maritime traffic through the Red Sea, uh, stand to lose. But I think the general point is that ultimately Iran doesn't want a direct confrontation uh, with the United States. They don't have, they're not under the illusion, neither are the Houthis under the illusion that they can defeat the U.S. militarily. They are waging and carrying out yep. a political strategy in which they want to uh, exploit this opportunity to come out as being the supporters sure. of the Palestinian cause. And this is an opportunity that will remain open to them so long uh, as Israel continues to refuse to engage in ceasefire. Uh, Dr. Walter, uh, Walter Ludwig, uh, you know, I mean, this is a question that so many around the world have, have asked. And, you know, I, I would ask you only to speculate of what, what possibly would the Houthis be seeking uh, by attacking international commerce, knowing fully well that the retaliation would be massive. And that retaliation has started. What could conceivably be their endgame? Well, I, I agree with what uh, Hassan has offered, which is to say that we can see this through the lens of sort of opportunism, which is to say uh, trying to strike out some degree of political... Uh, positioning on this particular issue. And we do see some very specific and um, strategic elements to the, the things that have been targeted. So, for example, uh, uh, Chinese vessels or identifiably uh, Chinese-linked vessels have largely been unmolested. Um, reports indicate that largely uh, uh, oil uh, tankers um, are, are passing through and it's just uh, a commerce and cargo goods. So this is not a full-scale interdiction. This is not a sort of return to the tanker wars of the, the 1980s. Um, and at the same time, I think we can see going back to your question about the degree to which this could, could escalate or broaden, um, you know, the UN Security Council did manage to pass a resolution condemning this, and the, the Russians and the Chinese did not stand in the way of that. So I think there are boundaries in terms of, of how far this could go and, and, and where parties want to go. And again, I, I agree completely with Hassan's point on um, the limits of, of Iranian uh, ambitions in this particular scenario. Glenn Carl, uh, you know, the war that uh, we, we aren't discussing or in the media as much as we did a year or two back uh, is um, the, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Um, is there uh, losing interest in the West in, in propping up 
Ukraine ensuring that they can continue to fight or do you believe that uh, the beginning of the end game is now inevitable given that neither Russia or Ukraine are able to gain large swaths of territory. In fact, neither side is really gaining anything presently. Well, we can at least begin to think about that, but I, I think it's premature to say that we can start to see the, the end game from either perspective, from the Russians or from the Ukrainians, in particular from the Russians, since the um, international focus and the material support to the Ukrainians is under strain and uh, attention has been diverted, certainly, by the crisis in the Middle East. And the initiative on the ground uh, along, the, uh, combat, along the front has shifted a bit uh, in favor of the Russians now. So I think the Russian strategy seems clearly to be that we can wait out the West uh, and uh, there are indications that uh, that is starting to to uh, pay off or at least be a conceivable outcome. So I don't see a change coming from Russia for the time being. And of course, for the Ukrainians, it's an existential issue. So uh, they have no interest in, in changing too much either, uh, unless the support from the West, principally the United States, um, starts to constrict so much that the Ukrainians don't have much choice. But I, I, so beginning to conceive of an end game, but but not not right now. No, no. Ambassador Sybil, what is your sense about the war uh, in Ukraine? Uh, do you believe that Russia would be able to sustain this indefinitely? Uh, do you believe that uh, the West will continue to support Ukraine? We've seen, for example, Rishi Sunak offer. Uh, you know, a sizable uh, 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 monetary assistance to uh, Ukraine at a time when that seemed to be coming down somewhat. How do you see the war or the conflict going? I, I ask myself the question, is it a war between Russia and Ukraine or is it a war between Russia and NATO? I mean, NATO has seized the opportunity of uh, what has happened in Ukraine, not on uh, 2022, but long before. Uh, right from the time when they started uh, uh, offering NATO membership to Ukraine. Uh, they've seen this uh, opportunity to weaken Russia, to, they have said so publicly, to militarily defeat Russia, strategically defeat Russia, isolate Russia internationally, and believe that these draconian sanctions would cause a collapse of the Russian economy. Now, this has not happened. Russia has suffered, but its economy has staged a bit of a, a comeback. And, and Russia has limited its ambitions in terms of what it wants to do militarily. It wants to actually keep control of the Donbas uh, and not at the moment extend further geographically because they know they don't have either the manpower or the capacity uh, to, to, uh, in, to invade such a large country uh, like Ukraine and control it, especially the western part of Ukraine which has never been traditionally part of the Soviet Union, was artificially brought into, uh, but was, was uh, made part of the Soviet Union by Stalin. They know that there's going to be terrible, terrible nationalist right. resistance. And therefore, at this moment, in terms of a war of attrition, time is on their side, because they have actually industrial capacity, manufacturing capacity, they are innovating, they're changing their military tactics, they are adapting themselves, they are performing much better on the ground, whereas all the problems now we see are on the Ukrainian side. There is uncertainty, 
uh, because uh, Western support is flagging. The U.S. Uh, spokesperson has said repeatedly that it's not as if we can keep giving you money. Uh, but at the same time, and I'll end with that, right. the West, NATO cannot defeat Russia, but the U.S. also cannot afford to see Ukraine defeated. So they are caught in a terrible jam, largely of their own making, if, if you allow me to say so. And I don't see a, an easy way out. This is going to continue. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much uh, for, for joining me for this part uh, of the discussion. It is going to be a, a real focus, whether it's the Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, or it is uh, the, the Israel-Gaza conflict over here at the World Economic Forum.